uh, reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. We read these verses last week as well, but we're reading them again. You can, of course, find them in the verses on the sermon notes page in your bulletin. If you have an app, if you have a Bible, turn to it right now, and uh, we will read these words together. Beginning at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. This is the word of the Lord. I can never decide whether to stay here or go there. I'm going to stay for now, but I reserve the right to move. Um, Well, this is part two of what has become a three-part series. Today would be the, the final portion or final message on this subject matter, but as I was wrestling through these issues and seeing how weighty they were and frankly hearing how many questions were coming out of people's engage groups, uh, last week, I, I came to the conclusion that to really do justice to this subject matter, we have, to, we have to be more comprehensive even than I intended to be. And so for those of you who maybe are guests, who apparently there are people who were advertising this, this message all over the place, and if you're a guest who's here particularly for this message, you might be partially disappointed by uh, some of the lack of clarity on questions that you have. Uh, however, This is all part of a master plan to get you to come back again. Um, Next week, we're going to drill. See, here's the thing. We have to talk. What we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about the clash between the, the culture's understanding of human sexuality and the biblical understanding of human sexuality. There's a clash, and we're going to try to understand what that clash is and where that clash comes from. But here's the thing. The reality is, is that the church has adopted so much of the culture's understanding of human sexuality that we need to do an entire message just on sexuality and the church. What's it? We got a bunch of singles in this place. Why is it so hard to be single in the church? It is hard to be single in the church. Ask any single person what it's like to be single in the church, and they'll tell you that it's hard to be single in church because the church, church has got a messed up view of sexuality and how it relates to 
uh, marriage and family and human flourishing, etc. And so we have got to do well and focused and practical. But I, I don't think there's any other way to do justice to it. I could, listen, I spend all week terrified about doing these messages uh, on this subject because of our cultural climate. So it's not because I'm into this. Uh, it, it, it creates a great deal of anxiety for me. But, but we cannot be afraid to face the hard subjects as the church because if, if I'm going to and if the church is going to be, be what it's supposed to be and do what it's supposed to do, which is to shepherd the people of God, you've got to talk about the stuff the people of God are facing every day in the world. You have to. So I don't apologize for it in that sense. I simply... One more thing. If you weren't here last week, I don't typically do this, but if you weren't here last week, you, you might want to listen to that message uh, to get the broad framework for the whole mini-series. Uh, it was a pretty important first step in understanding all of this. So some of what we talk about today might not make sense to you, it, and one of the reasons it might not make sense to you is because you didn't hear last week. It could also be because I'm just not very clear. I respect that that's a possibility, but it might be because you, you weren't here last week, so I'm just encouraging you, if you weren't, and this subject does interest you and you want to know more, uh, you can go on the website, it's up there, and you can have a listen. All right, very brief, uh, very brief summary of last week. What we did last week was, was we traced how uh, our culture's understanding of reality and the physical world of which our bodies are an integral, integral part, obviously, uh, has changed so that we have divided the world into a physical realm and a uh, mental, spiritual, uh, uh, values-related uh, philosophical realm, and that those two realms have become more and more in conflict with one another to the point where today, anyway, uh, human identity is no longer attached to the physical realm. And bloodness is no longer an, an important, necessary, constitutive, is the word, part of human identity. Instead, your inner self, that is, the self of the mind, the self of the soul, is where your true self, it imposes that self on the physical world, including on the physical body, okay? And so you actually have a moral duty if you want to be what's called a, a truly self-actualized person, a truly fully human and a fully, uh, a fully alive human being, you have a moral responsibility and duty to discover that inner you and express it to the world. Every one of us is supposed to do that individually and personally. None of us is allowed to impose our understanding of what it means to be a human being on another person because that would be considered oppressive practice. And so I quoted um, Camille Paglia, uh, again, a feminist philosopher, who says, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So the human body is now essentially a tool, a vessel, a vehicle for communicating and expressing your true self to the world. So far, so good? Okay. Now, one of the roots of that, 
is this is the evolutionary understanding of reality and of human beings. So, so the body, uh, so to speak, um, is, is just the result of random, evolutionary, purposeless processes. So you and I got here not because of any design or any intervention of a divine being who's, caught, who's directed us to be who we are. We're just simply the result of time plus chance plus matter. And therefore, our physical bodies have no moral, they are essentially morally neutral. So for example, um, uh, because they are parts of an amoral, purposeless Darwinian force, someone like um, Peter Singer, who is a philosopher at Princeton University, very famous American philosopher at Princeton University, he says this about sex. And this is, you can find it quoted on your Engage Group page if you want to follow along, right at the top there. It says, Peter Singer writes, Sex raises no unique moral issues at all. Decisions about sex may involve considerations of honesty, concern for others, prudence, and so on, but there is nothing special about sex in this respect, for the same could be said of decisions about driving a car. So any, moral, any morality connected to sexuality is, is personal, subjective, individual. All right? What we're going to see today is that there is a major clash that happens between the Bible's view of sex and sexuality and the culture's view of sex and sexuality. So last week, you had competing views of identity. This week, we have competing views of sexuality. And obviously, when we read Ephesians 5 together, you can see that Paul here and he, him elsewhere and other biblical writers all over the Bible, so this is a, a one, this is a unified message of the Bible from beginning to end. They have very strong things to say about the place of sex in human life. So in verse 3, Paul says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. In verse 5, he says, no immoral, impure, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 6, something very terrifying, he says, because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. So there are eternal consequences, Paul is saying, with how we understand our sexuality and how we express our sexuality. Now the culture, this is the first clash, clash number one. Write it down. Clash number one. Way, way, way too much of a deal of sex. Why is the church so hung up on sex? Here's the question. Why does God even care who I sleep with? Why does it matter to him? And actually, that's a good question. Fortunately, I think, our text gives us good answers. So here's the three things we're going to look at um, together this morning. We're going to look at what is prohibited, okay, why it's prohibited, and then why the stakes are so high. What's prohibited, why it's prohibited, why the stakes are so high. Here we go, first of all. What is prohibited? Now, we're giving a narrow definition to what is prohibited today, but next week, actually, I'm going to broaden that definition. So, whatever. If you're here next week, remember that. 
Um, in verse 3, Paul says, among you must, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. We're going to zero in on hint of sexual immorality uh, for this week. The word there is a Greek word, porneia, and it's often translated fornication, meaning sex between two unmarried individuals. But according to uh, what the Jews would understand and the biblical definition of porneia, it actually includes any sex act outside a permanent, exclusive marriage between a man and a woman. So any sex act outside an exclu- a permanent and exclusive marriage relationship between a man and a woman is prohibited. Now, obviously, that's clash number two because that sounds so restrictive, right? I mean, according, look, there's 50 kinds of sex out there. I don't, I haven't counted, but there's many, many different kinds of sex out there. And the Bible is saying only one kind of sex is allowed? I mean, there's a lot of people who are excluded when that's the definition of acceptable sexual expression. And it sounds lame, and it sounds oppressive to those who are, who are not part of that definition, right? But actually, what you will find out next week is that it's even more restrictive than what I've just given you. Because it's not simply limited to an immorality within that relationship as well. But that's next week. It's not like anything goes, but that's next week. Now, why is that? Let me ask you, a, you let's do this thought experiment here. Imagine you're like an art, art, you have an art gallery, and somebody gives you a Van Gogh original, like Starry Night, let's say. It's a priceless work of art, Okay. If you, what would you think if you said, okay, um, you know, I want to have a very democratic view of art. I want people to be able to decide how to view it and what to do with that art themselves. So I'm just going to go and put it on the lawn and let anybody come and have a peek at it and uh, interact with it any way they see fit. Would you do that? Of course you would do that. You would, you would not do that. You would have all kinds of rules. You would have tremendous security around this incredibly priceless piece of art because you would want to protect this piece of art. And you would be very, very, very upset if anybody actually broke those rules. Why? Because you have a very high view of art. And you have a very high view of this piece of art. Because you see its value. Because you see its importance. Okay? Now, the same is true with respect to the Bible, and that's why it needs to be protected the way it does. And frankly, actually, everybody knows this intuitively. You don't have to be a Christian to know this intuitively. You know this intuitively if you know anything about sex and sexuality, regardless of your religious um, uh, views, because everybody wants some parameters or some rules to exist around sex. Everybody has an opinion, to some degree, about who can sleep with who. Even in our laws, we have rules around who can sleep with who. You can't sleep with children. You can't sleep with a sibling. You don't have to be a Christian to say that having multiple partners is not a healthy thing. 
So this idea that, that the culture has, has, uh, is not hung up on sexuality and the church is hung up on sexuality is actually false. The, the, the issue is um, whose views, whose parameters make more sense. That's what really matters. So that's the, the first point. What is prohibited? Any sex act outside of a permanent, exclusive relationship, marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Okay, point number two. So why is it so restrictive? Why is it so restrictive? Well, Paul says, interestingly, he says this. He says, these things are improper for God's holy people. So what he's saying is, is there is a proper context for sexual expression. Just like there's a proper context for something as powerful as fire. Fire in the fireplace is wonderful. It brings warmth and it brings heat and it, you know, it brings light. It's very nice. But fire in the middle of your living room floor is not good. Okay? And Paul is saying that there is a particular context because there is a particular purpose for sex. And this is the place where the third clash happens. Okay? In our culture, you'll see basically three reasons for why, uh, what the purpose of sex would be, bases and stuff like that, but this is certainly sort of what people think uh, because it's in the water, you know what I mean? First of all, sex is uh, to satisfy an appetite. So we have sexual desires, these physical longings and desires, and sex is an outlet for those physical longing desires. Second of all, sex is a means of expressing uh, affection. So how do you show someone that you, uh, you care about them? Well, you do that through sex. And then the third one is that sex is a way of expressing your inner identity. It's, it's a way of showing and being who you are in the world. Now, the Bible affirms, number one, and number two. The Bible says that we are sexual beings, that we, uh, we uh, were created with these desires, and so sex, the sex act, if I can call it that, is a, an expression of those desires. And of course, the Bible says that it is a way of expressing affection and, and love and, and uh, uh, intimacy with another person. It does not, however, say that sex is an expression, a necessary expression of our inner identity. Why? That's next week. That's next week. But for now, understand this. Scripture says that the culture's understanding of the purpose of sex is incomplete. It does not go far enough. There are two more very important reasons for sex that inform the Bible's restrictions around it. And the first one is this. Sex was created, or, or sex, the purpose of sex is the creation of human life and the institution of the family. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and you take the stories of creation together, you discover that that is the case. God creates Adam and Eve as male and female, and he calls them to join life over the earth. Listen to what G.K. Chesterton, who is a, a, a Catholic writer, a brilliant Catholic writer from uh, the, the last century, what he says. 
Sex is an instinct that produces an institution. And it is positive and not negative, noble and not base, creative and not destructive, because it produces the institution. That institution is the family, a small state or commonwealth which has hundreds of aspects when it is once started. There are not sex that are, or sorry, it has hundreds of aspects when once started are not sexual at all. It includes worship, justice, festivity, decoration, instruction, camaraderie, repose. Sex is the gate of that house. And romantic and imaginative people naturally like looking through a gateway. But the house is very much larger than the gate. There are indeed a certain number of people who like to hang about the gate, but never want to go any further. Here's what he's saying. He's saying sex has a purpose beyond itself, beyond pleasure, beyond uh, self-expression. It has a purpose, a creative purpose. A creative purpose the creation of the institution of the family and the context in which new life is brought into the world. And this is one of the reasons that uh, same-sex relationships are prohibited in Scripture. It's not the only reason, but it's one of the major reasons. See, our culture has divorced sex from procreation. Our first, you know, well, not our first, one of our major steps toward that was the invention of uh, the pill. And I am not saying the pill is wrong and that the pill is a sin. What I am saying is, is that there were consequences to the invention of the pill that we didn't foresee and we weren't prepared for and we're now sort of beginning to reap the, the, the consequences of that. When culture divorced sex from, from procreation, what it did was, was it denied its biological function. For 2,000 years, in fact, many more years in all kinds of cultures around the world, sex was reserved for marriage because it was seen as the gateway to family. Now, it's not always. We know that. How many people are in relationships where uh, they're having sex and it's not producing offspring and that's incredibly painful and harm hurtful to them because that's something that they long for. That's what's part, that's part of living in a fallen world where everything that we're called to express and do is somehow messed up by the sin that it infects the world. And yet it's still part of the, it's an integral part of the whole purposes for sex. Now, here's why this is so important, okay? Is it, is it blooming hot in here? Oh, okay, you know, I thought it was just because I'm a chicken and I'm scared to say everything. And Here's why this is so important. The reason this is so important is because sex is actually, according to the Bible, part of an even bigger thing than just the creation of human family and the uh, passing on of human life to the next generation. Ultimately, according to the Bible, sex is a picture of the creative union and intimate bond between God and his people. 
sex is a picture, explicitly says that Jesus is related to the church in the same way that husbands and wives are related to one another. It explicitly says that. And so, when a, hus- when a wife falls into the arms of her husband, when a, when a husband falls into the arms of his wife, fruit is born through her body into the world. And in the same way, or, or so what I'm saying is, is that even the procreative purpose, okay, making babies, the procreative purpose of sex points to an ultimate purpose of sex because in the same way when a Christian puts themselves into the arms of their God, the triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when you put yourself into the arms of your Savior, spiritually speaking, the kingdom of God is born into the world, you see. This is why God is so restrictive about sex. You see, imagine if God said to us, imagine if God said this, he said, I will give you intimacy, I will give you love, I will pour myself into you, I will put my spirit in you, I will actually put myself in you, I will come into your life and I will give you blessing, but you don't need to be totally committed to me. You don't have to say, I'm totally yours, I am exclusively yours, I am permanently yours, I give myself to you. Of course he would not say that. And if sex is meant to be a picture of that, no wonder God says it needs to be carefully, uh, carefully uh, protected and, and expressed in the right context. Tim Keller put it this way, he said, to have physical oneness, and that's what happens in the sex act, the two become one, literally, physically, without total oneness is a monstrosity. Clash. Huge clash. Massive clash. Our culture says, look, sex is not even moral at all. There's no objective purpose to it. It is, it is a subjective experience, and it should only be... It ain't true. And the culture knows it ain't true. It's not true scientifically. So, let me try to be really clear about this. I'm very simple about this. Um, science, scientists have discovered, okay, that oxytocin is uh, released in a woman when she is breastfeeding and when she is sexually uh, when she has sex. And oxytocin is a chemical that produces bonding between mother and child and also bonding between her and her lover. But not only that, scientists have discovered that not only is a, a woman attaching to her lover and to her children when oxytocin is released in these ways, but men have the same thing because there's a chemical called vasopressin. And vasopressin in men is released when they have sex and Scientists have called it the, the monogamy molecule because what it does is, is it, it design, it's designed to bond them to their lover and even to the offspring that may, be, that may come out of this. And anybody who has had sex, whether inside a relationship but especially outside of a relationship, you know what this is talking about. Why is it that even if you have a one-night stand in the, in the middle of the act or, or in, the, in the throes of uh, erotic 
uh, experience, you want to give yourself to that other person. You want to say things like, I love you and I adore you and you are the most wonderful and I worship you with my body, which is Anglican language, it's awesome. Why do you want to do that? Because it's happening. Physically, it's happening to you. Because even the most rapturous sexual experience is merely an echo, friends, of what it's like to be fully united with your God. All you have to do is a, do is a Google search uh, with the term sex and transcendence. And what you will find over and over and over again is books and articles and blog posts being written about how through the sex act, you can somehow come to an experience of transcendence that is a, a, like an out-of-body experience or a, a union with the divine. Even if you're an atheist, you get this. Because the culture knows that there's something beyond sex that has everything to do with sex. All right, last three, last point. Why are the stakes so high? In verses 5 and 6, Paul says this, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes, present tense, on those who are disobedient. Paul says that a person who is committed to an unbiblical pursuit of sexual expression is an idolater. Now, this is not, I have desires that I fall into and I express them and I screw them up and then I repent and I turn from it and I know that these are things that God doesn't want from me. These are, this is persistent, consistent pursuing of sexual expressions that are the problem is worship. When you indulge in this, you are revealing your true God. And your God is not the God of the Bible. See, the restrictions are clear, and they're, they're really indisputable. Even the restrictions around, and we'll talk more about it next week, uh, around same-sex relationships, they're, they're very, actually, very consistent through the whole Bible and very, very clear. The problem is, is people demand to do what they see fit with their sexuality because sex is a kind of God. Now, let me explain quickly how, how you can see that this is true. People abstain from all kinds of things to honor their highest good, their God, the thing that they value most. And that's what your, what your God is. It's the, the, the person or the being or the even ideal that matters more to you than anything else. And people will abstain from eating all meat, or eating some meat, people will abstain from alcohol consumption, people will abstain from certain types of personal hygiene, people will abstain from having a foreskin, people will abstain from using their money in certain ways. Why? In order to honor their highest good. And you would think, well, that's nothing wrong with that, right? People abstain from certain foods or, or, or uh, certain practices because it's part of their faith. It's part of being a vegan. It's part of being a Jew or a Muslim or a minimalist or whatever. It's part of their faith. But when a Christian says that there are limits on sexuality, our culture says, no way! You can't tell me who I can sleep with. Why? And 
almost any kind of it must be right. Now, no culture in history has ever agreed with that, but no culture in history has ever made sex itself the God the way we do. Look, if you're single and you are in your 20s or 30s or 40s, heaven forbid, and you have not had sex, you are considered a weirdo, a freak. Like, what's wrong with you? Oh, you're just missing out. You're, you're, not, you're not fully human. I haven't seen it, but, you know, the movie, uh, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, is basically a movie about that very issue. Margaret Sanger who is a pioneer of the feminist movement and the sexual movement, she says this, it's on the front of your bulletin, I think, through sex, humankind may attain the great spiritual illumination which will transform the world, which will light up the only path to an earthly paradise. That's the language of religion. That's the language of worship. But, in verses 1 and 2, Paul says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here's here's Paul's point. He says, the fundamental identity of a Christian is child of God. That's your core identity. He says, look, Jesus offered himself to God as a fragrance offering and sacrifice. In other words, he fulfilled all the obligations of of God that we could ever owe him. He fulfilled them completely and totally so that God was totally satisfied with him. What does it mean to satisfy God? I mean, you can't even satisfy yourself. How hard must it be to satisfy God? But what it's saying here, when he says that he is a fragrant offering in your place, he's saying that when God sees you, okay, all that he sees, all that he smells, all that he experiences is total, absolute sweetness. Because of Jesus Christ, you are satisfying to God. And your identity then is that you are a child of God. Your identity is not your sexual desire. It's not your identity. It's not your sexual orientation. It's your status as God's child. Christians worship this. People say, people say, my identity is my sexual expression. But if your identity is your sexual expression, what do you do with the guilt and the shame that comes with acting out in, in ways that have been damaging to you or damaging to others? Some of you here this morning, you have been damaged by sexual expression that, that was done to you or sexual expression that you have committed and you are carrying the wounds of that and you live with the guilt and you live with the shame of that and you cannot get it out from, get out from underneath that because in your head, pardon the, the, the extreme language, but in your head, you're hearing the word slut. You're hearing the word useless. You're hearing the word uh, uh, used. You're hearing the word uh, stained. You're hearing the word defiled. And it's being poured into you by your own head and by the devil who wants to bury you. And the gospel is message that comes into you and it speaks truth to you as it says, you are not slut. You are not defiled. You are not pig. You are not used. You 
are not ruined. You are a healed, beloved, embraced child of God. No matter what you have done or what anyone has done to you, God looks at you and He is completely and utterly satisfied. When He smells you, you are nothing but the sweetest perfume to Him. That is who you are. And that, think of the image, the fragrance of the sacrifice on the altar wafting up to God, it doesn't come without death. It doesn't come that we, we have to give ourselves, we have to die to ourselves. So, but, but when Christ says no to sex outside of his design, he says no to sex outside of his parameters because he wants us to say yes to something far more valuable. Yeah, that's hard. That's hard. There's pain, sure. There's, there's suffering, there's sure. There's sacrifice, sure, but it's worth it. That's what God is saying. Every single person here, I don't know what our, I don't really care, to be honest with you, what your orientation is and what your desires are, etc. Every single one of us here has a sexual deviation from the will of God that needs to be denied. Because, why? Not because God will never be. I'm sure there are lots of questions. Um, some of them will be uh, answered momentarily, perhaps. Some of them maybe next week. Let's pray. Father, um, tough stuff, tough stuff. Once again, tough stuff. Such a clash between us and, and our culture. Um, help us to believe the truth of the Bible even when it is difficult. Give us a big vision of the cross to know that you are trustworthy and true because you demonstrated for your love for us in letting Jesus die in our place. In his name we pray, amen.